Good morning. We have a phone number for our ministry now, and the phone number is 423-661-4734. And Gary uh, Jones is uh, currently working, uh, answering the phone for us and working behind the scenes to help support a lot of the work that we're doing. And so maybe you get a chance to meet him. He's here uh, in the back, back there today. Alrighty. So we're doing lesson number 11 in the uh, quarterly Jeremiah, and the title this week is uh, The Covenant. And the memory text is a very famous memory text, Jeremiah 31, 31. And it says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. When you hear the word covenant, what comes to mind? What does it mean? Promise or agreement between people. Promise or agreement between people. Mutual promise. Mutual promise. The famous covenant that gets talked about very, very frequently is the covenant made with Abraham. And a few months ago, I was in California doing a TV interview with Mike Tucker at the Lifestyle Magazine TV show, and one of our online class members and friend, Luann Seraphine, uh, was there, and we were talking at lunch about covenants, and Mike told us that the covenant made with Abraham was called a suzerain covenant, which I had not really ever heard about before. And Luann went home and, and sent me her notes on this, and I, I put those in our notes, so if you'd like to, to look at those. But the suzerain covenant is a covenant uh, between a, uh, a, a person who is a superior or in power with someone who's an inferior. The uh, person in power is called the suzerain, and the inferior person is called the vassal. Um, <clears throat> there really isn't anything in modern culture similar to these types of covenants the closest they say is the is the marriage covenant relationship where where there's a public ceremony and a in a commitment to two people to be in a a uh, contract if you will a marriage contract a marriage relationship agreement that's the closest in our culture of a cultural covenant that was similar to the suzerain covenant uh, of abraham's time and uh, when they would join themselves there were several aspects to this uh, they would have a sacrifice and a meal together during the covenant. Um, the, um, the Lord promised to provide Abraham with a large family and a homeland, and Abraham's promise was to trust the Lord. That's what Abraham had to promise. Now, the two big differences between the, the ones, the covenants that were carried out between human beings and the one that God and Abraham did is that Typically in a suzerain covenant, the, the vassal, the one in the inferior position, had a whole bunch of responsibilities imposed upon him or her by the one in charge, the, the suzerain. In Genesis 15, however, really nothing is stated about Abraham's responsibilities. Uh, it's focused on what the Lord will do, and um, Abraham was simply to cherish all these things in his heart. He didn't have actually a lot of behavioral responsibilities. The second difference is the, the subordinate, the vassal, was to take the animal and sacrifice it in two and walk down between the two halves of the animal, symbolically saying, if I break this covenant with you, the person in power, this is what is going to happen to me. And you know, in Abraham's covenant, it was the uh, animals that the, the burning fire walked down between the animals, which was basically God putting himself in that position, saying, I would rather die than break my, my promises with you. So covenant, agreement. First two paragraphs in Sabbath's lesson says the following. It says, although the Bible speaks of covenants in the plural, there is only one basic covenant, the covenant of grace, which God bestows, uh, in which God bestows salvation upon fallen beings who claim it by faith. The idea of plural covenants arises from the various ways God has restated the essential covenant promise in order to keep, to meet the needs of his people in different times and settings. But whether it's the Adamic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Sinaitic covenant, the Davidic covenant, or the new covenant, the idea is the same. The salvation salvation God provides is a gift, unmerited and undeserved. And the human response to that gift, in a sense, humanity's holding upon its side of the deal is faithfulness and obedience. Thoughts about that? Questions? That's not the language you use with your children. What language do you use with children? Well, we have a covenant. Unmerited, undeserved attention is not really part of that equation. Yeah. So where do you think this, I like where you're going with this, where do you think this idea that grace is unmerited, undeserved? 
So if your if your child is three and you know has a temper tantrum, doesn't doesn't want their broccoli, throws it on the floor. Any any parent ever faced a situation like this? My mother faced it constantly. And uh, um, do you say you don't deserve this? But what does the child deserve at that point? Correction. Could you argue that the child actually deserves a parent that loves them and will treat them with grace? Especially if the child was brought into the world by that parent. Could you make that argument? It's not the argument that's typically given theologically. Is, is, and so keep that idea in mind. This idea of grace is often argued as unmerited favor, that we don't deserve it, but God gives it. Um, because where do they focus the attention? Where does that argument arise? The focus is where? On us. on us. But if you switch the focus to the character of God, then what, what, what do you come up with? He couldn't do anything but that. He couldn't do anything but that. That's his nature. That's his character. In fact, he would rather die than not interview. Think about a parent who would rather die than, than harm their child. Mm-hmm. Isn't that how it works? Yeah. So I think the focus is, again, very self-centric, egocentric. And much of Christianity is egocentric, self-centered. How can I be saved? How can I get my sins paid for? How can I get my sins erased? When I get to heaven, no one will know the deeds that I've done because they've gone into judgment beforehand and erased out of the books. And on and on we go. So all covenants are an expression of the covenant of grace. I would agree with that. Which is, stated succinctly, the covenant of grace is, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That is the covenant of grace. God loved us too much to let us go. That's what it was. So God committed himself to reverse what Adam did to the species human and to restore this creation back to its original design. That's what God committed himself to do. What do you think is conveyed in the idea from the lesson of faithfulness and obedience? Faithfulness and obedience. That our response is faithfulness and obedience. What's conveyed in this idea? Behavior. Behavior. Behavior is what God wants. That's what that's implying. And that implies a condition as well. What condition? Obedience. Oh, you mean a condition upon the, if we, uh, the, the grace is conditional, is what you're saying. It's like conditional love now. Many, many of my patients really have struggled uh, with their sense of well-being because they were raised in homes where they experienced that the love was conditional. If I didn't do what I, then, then I wasn't loved. I was only loved for how well I performed. And they have a lot of what we would call um, perfectionistic tendencies. Yes. Yeah, it, it sort of puts us in the position of a criminal defendant who's asking the judge to give them a, a break they don't deserve, and then they're placed on probation. But if, but if they mess up, they're going to get violated on, on probation and locked up. Right. Right. And then, go ahead, Russell. My thought when we were first reading this covenant is we, my mind automatically went to a legal mindset. Yeah. You know, we have, we have contracts, we're legal contracts, legal covenants. Even the marriage contract today is a legal, it's a state-mandated legal contract with certain penalties for um, breaking the contract and rewards for staying in the contract. Might, might God have been trying to make Abraham step toward a natural law understanding because uh, he, he reversed the roles. God, so, the fire went through the split animal instead of Abraham. I like it. So this idea of obedience then, let's think about it. Instead of this behavior, let's look at Somebody who is in the line, the progenitive Christ, Rahab. Rahab is in the hall of faith in Hebrews, which makes her faithful. But what did she do? She lied. But she helped the spies. Have sex for money. God looks at the intention, and I think the faith is a gift of the Holy Spirit. So this is my point. By putting Rahab in this context, it, it, it really kind of blows apart this idea that faithfulness is on how well you perform. Faithfulness is the motive of the heart. So if you had a three-year-old and you were out weeding in your garden, and you're pulling weeds around your tomato plants, and your three-year-old comes up behind you, sees what you're doing, pulls up a tomato plant, and with a big smile goes, help mommy? <laughs> Do you spank them for their wickedness? They didn't pull a weed. They pulled a tomato plant. Their performance is not very good. Bad performance. 
Or do you recognize the faithfulness, the, the good-heartedness here? You're looking at the heart, not the performance. What happens if you have a teenager you send out the weed, and they only pull weeds, don't damage the tomato plant, but they curse you the entire time because they can't be on their Game Boy. <laughs> you see, that's, this is the prodigal and the older brother. This is, this is Christianity by and large. The people sitting on the pews who never have made a, a public mistake, Okay, they've not been vetted by the media. They have no public uh, incriminations for the church. They sit there with their nose in the air like the older brother, critical of the Rahabs and, and those who have stumbled and fallen. But those who have, like Rahab or the child who pulls up the tomato plant, they're the ones with the tender hearts, but they get beaten down oftentimes by the critics. So this idea of obedience in the New Testament... The Greek word for obedience in the New Testament is hupokeo, hupokeo, and it has two halves. The first half, hupo, we get the word hypo, like hypoglycemic, hypotension, hypodermic, it means under or low, and the last half is where we get the word acoustics or acoustical, and it means to hear or to listen. And so the Greek word obedience, actually in the New Testament, me, and it is translated obedience, to obey or obey. And what it means is a humble willingness to listen. That's what it means. A low, humble listening. So, not how well you perform. We see this even today. It's a, this is why Jesus in the scripture was always saying things like, hearing, though they do not hear. Let him who has ears hear. They, this was what obedience is. They're, they're disobedient because they're stiff-necked and hard-hearted and they don't listen. The obedient, they're, they're, they have ears that hear. And so we even say today things like this. Do you hear me? Are you listening? Okay? And we're not talking about are the sound waves hitting their tympanic membranes and stimulating their acoustic neurons. We're talking about are they comprehending? Are they actually understanding what you're saying? Are they, or are they, I hear you. Talk to the hand. I hear you. You know, they're not listening, even though they're listening. This is, this is the big, it's about, it's about the heart attitude. So humble willingness to listen, example, the classic example in the, um, you know, ancient times, the master actually had a person who sat at the gate of his estate, and the title, the job title for this person was the hupa okue. That was his job title, the same word as we get obedience from. And when the, when the landowner or the master would approach, he would shout out that he's coming, and it was the job of that person to get up and open the gate. That was his job, to, to humbly listen, uh, humbly wait and listen. And then when he listened, he was, but what happens if he gets up to, to, and, he, and he goes to open the gate, but the gate has been rusted shut, or the, it was a wooden gate, it's got humidity or rain, and it's swollen, and with all of his weight, he can't, with all of his might, he can't get the gate open. And so the master has to actually get off his horse and lean into it with him, and together they open the gate. Is he a disobedient servant? Because he couldn't do it. No, it's not about performance. We make it always about performance. It's about a humble willingness to listen, and, and then follow the, the, uh, the, 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 the um, prescription. It's about the motivation of the heart. So why is this, think about it, why is this type of obedience, the hypocrisy, the humble willingness to listen, to understand, to hear our responsibility in the covenant, the covenant of grace? This is our responsibility in the covenant. Why? Well, what's the war between God and Satan over? God's character and trustworthiness, right? Which means, can I trust him or not? That's the big question. And where is the battlefield? In our minds, Second Corinthians ten three through five. What are the weapons of Satan? Lies. Lies are primary. Deception primary, and then coercion, coercive pressure, and selfishness in the heart. Okay, what are the weapons of God? Truth, love, freedom. There you go, big ones. So, what is it that determines righteousness? Righteousness, behavior, or heart? Heart. Heart. Clearly, it's heart. So, as the, as the heart is healed, it is true that the behaviors begin to change. But what is the key to changing the heart? It's trust in God, isn't it? 
And what is the key to trusting God? Knowing Him. The truth about who He is or knowing Him. And what is the key to understanding or assimilating truth? A heart that humbly willing to listen and follow the truth. That's why the biblical, or our response in the covenant is a mind that loves truth, a heart that loves truth. It's humbly willing to be corrected, to be re-instructed and directed based on the evidence of truth. And I would again put forth the integrative approach that you don't believe just powerful speakers or proclamations or declarations or even quotations from scripture, the devil quoted scripture. But you integrate that into an understanding of how God's design laws work in reality and your own life experiences. They all have to harmonize. This is our experience. If we really hear God, we are one to trust. Open the heart, the spirit comes in and takes all that Christ achieves, reproduces it in us, so it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. Sunday's lesson, first paragraph. We look at how bad the world is today. That is, we see all the evil in it, and yet God still bears with us. Thus, we can only imagine just how bad things must have been in order for the Lord to destroy the whole world with a flood. God has given men his commandments as a rule of life, but his law was transgressed and every conceivable sin was the result. The wickedness of men was open and daring. Justice was trampled in the dust and cries, and the cries of the oppressed reached into heaven. Do you notice the, 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 the first sentence? Yes. We see all the evil and yet God still bears with us. It's like a surprise. I, I'm, I'm just dumbfounded. He, he bears with us. My question, what else would he do? What, what other option is there? Seriously, if he's not going to bear with us, what is the lesson suggesting? Either abandon us or turn against us, punish us. Yes? This is a text that I like that kind of shows God's perspective about the flood and things he has to do. Um, Genesis 6, 5 and 6. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. What do you think that means? Do you think it meant he he regretted uh, creating man? That he regretted it, wished he didn't do it. But Some that, people suggest that. But that what we do, how we live out our lives, impacts God. That he f- he feels like a parent toward us. If we saw our children hurting or killing each other, if we saw the you know what they had become, not only would we have the yearning to improve the situation, but I mean it would it would cut us to the heart. And isn't this written particularly for us human beings on earth to know how tender God's heart is toward us? Not because God experienced something in that moment that he had no idea he was going to experience. That God foreknew and understood beforehand that he was going to experience this. But it was written in a way to let us know that he is not um, a, uh, a supercomputer with no emotions at all, just calculating outcomes. That he is a tender intelligent being, or he's not some force that we just tap into, the force of good in some way. He's an intelligent being with real individuality, whose heart and, and, and sense of, of, of being is moved by, by the sufferings of his creatures. And I think it's written in this way to let us know it really breaks his heart. He's not the wrathful, I'm going to kill them all, you know. It's but the, the lesson is... Feeling. It's the same feeling he had with Sodom and Gomorrah. But the lesson is suggesting something else. The lesson is suggesting that it's almost surprising that he bears with us and things must have been really bad for God to destroy and, and his, his law of rule of life was broken and, and um, all types of wickedness was being... They cite the example of the flood. What is significantly different in the world today than at the time of the flood? Christ is this is the key. This is the absolute key to understanding this. Everything happening before Christ, the the mission of Christ to do what's necessary to save the human race and fix what Adam broke had not yet been achieved. Christ still needed to come. Satan was aggressively working to prevent the plan of salvation from happening. And how could he prevent it? We've talked about this before. God would not have Jesus born to a woman like Jezebel, or he wouldn't force a woman against her will to become impregnated. He had to have a willing, righteous woman to be, par- to be part of that process. 
Satan, if he can get every human being to permanently harden their heart against God, the avenue for which Christ comes shut. And at the time of the flood, there was one righteous man left on the earth, according to the scripture. Only one. Every other human being was no longer working with God. The people who got on the ark, the, the eight, there was one righteous. The other seven got on, were saved simply because they got on the ark, not because they were righteous. And you see what happens after, shortly after that some of the behavior was quite unrighteous. And so what do we learn from this? God waited how long? How, long, how much longer could he wait when there's only one left? This is not an act of punishing of sin. This is an act of therapeutic intervention to keep open the avenue, the only possibility to save. All humans would be lost if God didn't take this action. It's a huge difference. The idea of using power to inflict punishment for sin is part of Satan's lies about God and deeply infects Christianity. I think God, in this time in history, is waiting for people to understand God's use of power. In Old Testament times, were always therapeutic interventions, and you can't get what he wants by the exercise of might and power. However, don't feel bad if you've struggled with this, because even perfect, sinless beings didn't get this figured out right away. This is um, from one of the founders of our church. Two quotes I want to read to you. First one is Signs of the Times, August 27, 1902. Before Christ's first advent, the sin of refusing to conform to God's law had become widespread. Apparently, Satan's power was growing. His warfare against heaven was becoming more and more determined. A crisis had been reached. With intense interest, God's movements were watched by the heavenly angels. Would he, conf- would he come forth from his place to punish the inhabitants of the world for their iniquity? Would he send fire or flood to destroy them? All heaven waited upon the bidding of their commander to pour out the vials of wrath upon the rebellious world. One word from him, one sign, and the world would have been destroyed. The world's unfallen would have said, Amen. Thou art righteous, O God, because thou hast exterminated rebellion. And then this next one is out of a review in Herald, July 17, 1900. For centuries, God looked upon, looked with patience and forbearance upon the cruel treatment given to his ambassadors as his holy law prostrate despised, trampled underfoot. He swept away the inhabitants of the Noatian world with a flood. But when the earth was again peopled, men drew away from God and renewed their hostility to him, manifesting bold defiance. Those whom God rescued from Egyptian bondage followed in the footsteps of those who had preceded them. Cause was followed by effect. Notice, cause followed by effect. Natural design law stuff. The earth was being corrupted. A crisis had arrived in the government of God. The earth was filled with transgression. All heaven was prepared at the word of God to move to help to the help of his elect. One word from him, and the bolts of heaven would have fallen upon the earth, filling it with fire and flame. God had but to speak, and there would have been thunderings and lightnings and earthquakes and destruction. The heavenly intelligence were prepared for a fearful manifestation of almighty power. Every move was watched with intense anxiety. The exercise of justice was expected. The angels looked to God to punish the inhabitants of the earth. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I will send my beloved son, he said. It may be they will reverence him. Amazing grace, Christ came not to condemn the world, but to save it. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The heavenly universe was amazed at God's patience and love. To save fallen humanity, the son of God took humanity upon himself. Mind-blowing. This is, this is why uh, in Colossians, it says in Colossians 1, 18, that all things in heaven and in earth are reconciled to Christ at the cross. These heavenly beings didn't penetrate the lies and the distortions of Satan. They didn't understand that God cannot achieve love and trust by the exercise of force. They saw the the wickedness, the abomination, and this was Satan's goal, to, to get human beings to be so wicked and so abominable that it would appear right for God to use his power to kill and to execute. He was trying to tempt God into taking this action, thus proving Satan right that God can't be trusted with power. What is it that God actually wants from us? He wants our love and trust. And it cannot be attained by the exercise of 
coercive pressure, force, threat, punishment. Why not? Why can it not be tame, obtained this way? Because of God's law. Yes, when you understand design law, the law of liberty, whenever you violate liberties in a relationship, love is always damaged and will eventually be destroyed and the desire to rebel is instilled in the heart. Every time you do this, those who claim God punishes sin and sin must meet its punishment, those who teach this from the pulpit do so because they want to uphold God's law. This is what they, we want to uphold the law. The law must be maintained. The law therefore requires punishment. And what they're actually arguing is they're arguing Satan's version of God's law, not the actual truth of God's law. I like the way God um, addresses our fear because if fear removes our ability to love, then part of what God has to do is address our fear. And in this lesson, they're talking about God putting a rainbow there. We're going to come to that in a second. Uh, okay. Where you were headed. But um, in any event, I like the way God sees that we might react to things like the flood and Sodom and Gomorrah and stuff with fear. And so he's trying to find a way to reinforce that we don't need to be afraid of him, that he means what he says. So every time, this is exactly what, 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 what you're commenting on, every time, let's look at the evidence. The evidence of what actually transpires in history. Every time God did use power, therapeutically, to keep open the avenue for the Messiah, what actually was the response of the people afterwards? More love and trust or more fear and rebellion? So after the flood, why did they build Babel, the Tower of Babel? Because they didn't believe there was a God? They didn't trust him. How about Egypt, the ten plagues, and Sinai, the thunderings? What were they doing 40 days later? How about Mount Carmel and the mighty display of power there? What's the history of Israel after that? Did God ever get love and trust by the use of force and power? No, that's why Zechariah 4, 6. Not by might, nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works, says the Lord. And the Spirit is the Spirit of? Two true primary characteristics described by the Holy Spirit? Spirit of truth and the Spirit of love. It's truth and love. Only truth presented in love wins people. And this is what God wants. Level one through four of moral development sees the world through the lens of imposed laws, rules that must be enforced. That sinful beings require punishment. And thus they falsely teach that God operates like we do on earth and justice requires that sin must be punished. So God's going to have a tribunal. Sins are going to be recorded in books. There's going to be investigation of those books. Those who don't get some legal penalty paid to those uh, sins and get them removed from the books, then God will come back and have to inflict punishment upon them for their sins. Levels 5 through 7, though, see that through the lens of design law and the, lo- the love, God's character of love, realize that deviations from his law are actually destructive to those who deviate. And therefore, God is working through Christ to restore the deviant back to harmony with his design. So if you see a sick person, a psychotic, deranged person, out of control, violent, cutting themselves, threatening others, what do you want to do to that person? Especially if you love them. What do you want to do for them? Do you want to punish them? Do you want to heal them? Restrain. Restrain to do what? Keep them from hurting themselves or others. See, that's so limited. Heal them. Way beyond restraint. (laughs) Okay, restraint to do what? Heal. So that you can heal. Restrain long enough to intervene to heal. But you're right. Restraint is the is the thing. Using and this is where a lot of people I have a lot of discussions. I, when I travel around, people come up to me. Uh, should Christians bear arms? Should, should Christians use violence or force? Should Christians carry guns? Should if you believe in Christ and the message you teach, should that happen? And I just give them the 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 example of a practicing psychiatrist. When you have an out of control psychotic person and you love the person, what do you do for them? You use restraining power. Restraining power. That's what you use. And yes, there's absolutely a place for love to use restraining power, not retributive power, not power seeking to to kill the other because you hate them. That's not it. You love the person. If any parent, think about a child. If you had the if you knew your child was going out today to do a mass shooting, would you restrain them if you could? Absolutely. Would you use power to hold them back if you could? And are you just protecting the people they shoot, or who are you even protecting more? What happens to the character and the conscience of the person who does the evil deed? 
The people who get shot may, be, may have a great relation with the Lord and love others, and their conscience are clear. They're eternally secure. But what's happening to the one who uh, performs these actions? Hardens their heart. Yeah, so when you have love, there's absolutely a place for restraining power. Even for the police, the police force and things like this, yes. But we're often, and most of the time, we're powerless to do any healing within our human interactions. And so all we see, when when all you have is a hammer, a nail is everywhere, you know? And so if you don't have the ability of healing any of this, you know... It still goes back to motive of the heart, though. The reason people often pick up the hammer is not because they see nails everywhere, because they see threats everywhere. Threats to the self. That's why. And they look at our propaganda. We call, we call it the news. And it is absolutely designed to make you afraid. It's designed to promote threat, 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 threat. Protect self, protect self, protect self. And so we're conditioned to, to not go out into the world with a heart of compassion and love, but to go out in the world with the heart of watch out for myself, protect myself. Do you think that's possible? Did I misunderstand your point? No, I just, I just think we have, um, we have a limited scope of choices for us. So even as a physician, when you have a patient that you don't have the capacity to, re- to heal, Ewing sarcoma or something, um, what is your attitude? I can't heal this. What do you do? Send me something else. <laughs> you still treat them with compassion and you let them know that you would heal them if you could. And you do all you can to make their life as as least miserable as the condition itself is bearing upon them. So is that not true spiritually as well? And that might mean we incarcerate somebody because that's the least miserable their life will be because if they were out in the world, they would be destroying themselves and everyone around them. Yeah. And those conditions which you do not have any for, those are the most heart-rending to you. They are. Because that person or whatever is beyond the scope of help. And you have... It's it's heart-rending. It is very heart-rending. And we've all been there. And and it also plays on one of the generally universal human um, areas we find personally uncomfortable. That is our helplessness. None of us really like to be helpless. And I find patients will often come to see me for various, when they find themselves in a circumstance in life where they find themselves helpless. Whether it's a loved one with a sickness or some other situation, we do not like helplessness, do we? But those helpless situations are often the times that if we are open to the movements of the Spirit, that we actually can make the most advances in our relation with God and learning to trust. Russell? In situations like that, we still have the capability and the privilege of revealing Christ to these people. Yes. And that, that may be exactly what they need. You know, if Dr. Moses got someone with an osteosarcoma, that he's diagnosed as malignant, and he, he knows that this person's got 90 days to live, uh, he may feel helpless as a physician, but he can still reveal Christ to this person and, and perhaps um, change their mindset to the point where they are saved eternally. Way in the back from our online listener. Uh, from Waldensian, question for Dr. Jennings. What counsel can you share regarding when one civilian used lethal force to protect family or neighbors or strangers? Uh, and the same person says, what counsel can you share regarding when one civilian used lethal force to protect family or neighbors or strangers? Yeah, it's all, it all depends on the motive of the heart. There is no right or wrong answer here on this. It's all the motive of the heart. Where do you, what are you interested in? Can you, can you use lethal force in one circumstance with evil intentions and evil because there's hatred in your heart? Can you do it because there's love in your heart and great grief? I can think of multiple scenarios where you can use lethal force with a heartbreak, doing it out of an act of love to protect everyone involved. I remember the classic example, growing up as a kid watching an old Western, okay, was where the guy's best friend gets, gets two cowboys, best friend gets kidnapped by 3,000 Apaches, and they stake him out, and they're torturing him, skinning him alive, and he's up on a ridge with his rifle, and he shoots his friend in the heart. 
Why did he do this? Because he hated his friend? He was, no, he, he was, it, was, it was a euthanasia, if you want to call it that. Are there circumstances? And so you can't set a cookie-cutter rule for these things. You just can't, and not in this world. You have to judge each circumstance at the time, being open to the movements of the Spirit to give you wisdom and discernment on how to act. If you, uh, the example I've given before, I remember I was driving, I was uh, speaking in, in Miami, and they had a driver driving me, and I was talking about some of these ideas of love, and he goes, I don't know, um, Dr. Doc, if, if I walked in and saw a crazed-out drug addict attacking my family with a knife and I had a gun, I, I'd, I'd shoot him. And I said, let's take that scenario. Your wife and your three of your small kids are at home, and there's a 19-year-old psychotic on, high on, on methamphetamine, and he's threatening your family, and you've got a gun, and the 19-year-old happens to be your firstborn son. What do you do? And he goes, I don't like you very much. <laughs> but see, that's the way it is with God. Every one of us are his firstborn son. I mean, we're just children. That's how he looks at us. And, and so I said, if you did shoot, what would be your reason for shooting? To, 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 because you, you want to kill the guy? And if you shot, would you shoot to kill or would you shoot to wound? And, and who are you most concerned about? If your wife and your three kids that are being threatened, you know, have a great love relationship with the Lord. And if they should die, you've, you have a great sense of confidence that they're eternally secure. But if your son, 19-year-old son, dies in his current state, are you, are you confident about his eternal security? Who are you most concerned about saving right now? It's like, it blew his mind. He's like, I'm confused. But we think so often through a certain lens. Second paragraph is about God's covenant with Noah. And I thought maybe we'd read in Genesis 9, 9 through 17, the covenant. And, and I don't know if you've ever really noticed this covenant before. It says, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and the, all the wild animals, and all those who came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be cut off by... The, the waters of a flood, never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. What do you think of this? What kind of covenant is this? Where is the agreement on the other side? Where did the, what was the performance and behavior the animals had to do in order to participate in this covenant? Did, Adam, did Noah and his children have to do more than the animals had to do in this covenant? Yes? You have one more verse. That's really interesting. Verse 16, whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. Yes. I always thought that was kind of funny. I always thought, you know, he put it there for us to see. (laughs) But it's worded here like it's there for me to see. Okay, so let's talk about that. Why do you think it's worded like this? To reassure us. Yes. This was not written so that God would see it. And it's not actually a fact that when God sees it, I'll go, oh yeah, I forgot. I better uh, put the water back in the water tanks. Okay? Uh, I was about to lash it out and pour it out. No, it's not that way at all. It is a written because we humans have such distorted views of God. He, he humbles his own self to write in language that gives us reassurance. Hey, every time we see that, God said he'll remember. I don't have to doubt anymore. He remembers. See, God, remember, remember the rainbow, God? It shows how far away they were from actually knowing God, that he would have to speak like this. That's a great point. So... This covenant, though, I just want you to notice, this is a covenant that required no response on the part of those who are benefiting from this covenant. I think the covenant was spoken, as you just read there, about the rainbow for people operating at level four and below. That's who he's speaking to here. Like a parent speaking to a child. Monday's lesson, second paragraph, 
It says, through Abraham's seed, referring to his many descendants, but in particular to one, Jesus, God would bless the entire world, all who would be part of Abraham's seed, which happened by faith in Christ, would find that Abraham's God would be their God as well. Even back then, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Abraham was no more saved by works than the thief on the cross was. It's always and only God's saving grace that brings salvation. Abraham fulfilled his end of the covenant promise. His obedience revealed the the faith that took hold of the promise of salvation. His works didn't justify him. Instead, the works showed that he was already justified. That's the essence of the covenant and how it is expressed in the life of the uh, life of faith. And then on, in the pink section at the bottom, dwell on the great truth that your hope of salvation comes only from the righteousness of Jesus credited to you by faith. It, before we go any further, I want to make this very clear. It is absolutely true that our hope of salvation is only because of Jesus and his righteousness. That's, that's my position. Only because of Jesus and his righteousness do we have uh, salvation. So we're not suggesting that we can be saved in any other way than Jesus and his righteousness. However, I am going to suggest that Satan has perverted the true meaning of it. And if you think strategically, before we even get into the evidence what I'm about to say... <clears throat> After Christ achieves his mission, and Satan can't stop it, he, stopped, he tried many ways to stop it. He attacked the whole world and tried to get everybody to, to close their hearts at the time of the flood, but, but the flood came and kept open the avenue of the Messiah. Then after Abraham, he targets Abraham's children and descendants to try to destroy this group of people because now he knows he doesn't have to focus on the whole world, just this one family. If he can get rid of them, then the, the avenue for the Messiah is closed. But he fails there. When Christ is born, he tries to get Herod to kill baby Jesus because if he can get baby Jesus killed, then he won't achieve his mission because his mission wasn't the shedding of innocent blood. That was not what was necessary. Herod would have done that. We have innocent baby Jesus, bloodshed, but still plan of salvation is obstructed. He tempts Jesus in the wilderness to get Jesus to try and, and give in to temptation to obstruct the mission, but he fails in every attempt. So Jesus completes his mission at the cross, rises again, ascends to heaven. He can't stop Jesus from completing his mission now. So what's his next best, what's his next strategy, only strategy? To twist the meaning of it in the minds of everybody on earth. So we, okay, he came, he achieved, but what he achieved is something that was never intended. It was not something he never actually really needed to achieve. But we all believe he achieved something that was not necessary for our salvation. And what is it we all teach, or the whole Christian world teaches, that he achieved that isn't even necessary for our salvation? That he calmed God down. Appeasement, you want to say it that way? Legal pardon. You want to say it that way? Payment for our sin, if you want to say it that way. This whole penal legal structure is based on an infection that happened when Constantine converted that the God's law works like human law works. And when that happened, the whole world shifted its understanding of the cross away from his achievement, which was taught in the early church called the recapitulation theory, that Christ destroyed sin, destroyed Satan's lies and Satan's power, and restored humankind back to God's original design in his own humanity. Thus he rose again with a perfected humanity that he, that he perfected. Thus he becomes the source of salvation for all who will obey him. Hebrews 5, 8, 9. That's the real achievement. But what instead, there's a fraud that's being perpetrated upon people. Jesus died to pay your penalty, and if you accept the legal penalty, then you are accounted as righteous or declared to be righteous, even though you're not. This is how it's taught. And I've talked to multiple theologians that teach this, this idea of, of righteousness or justification is a legal declaration from God for those who accept the legal payment, even though they're not actually righteous, God declares them to be so. And I say, so God's lying. You say he's declaring, if I accept Jesus, he declares me to be righteous even though I'm not righteous. So he's declaring something to be true that's not true. Yeah, but, 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 but. They don't, they don't like that. It's all because of the infection. And this is what Daniel 7, 25 warned about. A power would seek to change God's law. Or Paul wrote about in Thessalonians, the man of sin would come. And he would set himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Which temple? The spirit temple. And how did he do it? By infecting the spirit temple with the idea that God runs his universe no different than a Roman dictator runs Rome. Tim. Yes. So, did, do you think that the early Christians understood the picture of God correctly before Constantine, up until Constantine? I think many of them did. And in fact, not even early Christians. After David's big sin with Bathsheba and Uriah, what does David write in Psalms 51? Father... Declare that I am righteous, even though I am not. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. What did Jesus say to Nicodemus? 
Except a man be declared righteous, even though he's not, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Is that what Jesus told him? Except a man be legally pardoned, even though he doesn't deserve it. Born again. Yes, this is what the scriptures always taught. It's the same truth over and over again. We are defective in heart and mind with bad motives. We can't fix what's broken. Our Christ came, partook of our humanity, perfected human nature in his own journey on earth, and now he offers his victory so it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We become, according to Peter, partakers of the divine nature. This is an actual real thing. We get new heart, new motives. So... If you actually look at this word in both Romans chapter 4 and the Galatians chapter 3, 6 quoted in the lesson where it talks about Abraham believed God and was either accounted righteous or declared righteous or credited as righteous, the Greek word there used in both places is logizmoi. I'm not really good at speaking Greek, but logizmoi. And here's what the uh, Strong's lexicon says about this word used in both places. The word deals with reality. If I logiza moai or reckon that my bank book has $25 in it, it actually has $25 in it. Otherwise, I'm deceiving myself. The word refers to facts, not suppositions. That's what it means to be declared righteous. It has to be there in the heart. It can't be God declares you righteous even though you're not. This is a lie. And it's so deeply embedded into Christianity. And I'm going to, in a second, show you why this keeps Christians paralyzed. And this is an infection that has prevented the Christian church from, from finishing its mission. But, so what is genuine justification? And notice the sequence of events. The natural human heart is in what state towards God since Adam? Enmity, Enmity against him, distrusting him. Abraham trusted God, it says. And then, after his heart had been changed, his notice, his heart, natural distrust, his heart now trusts God, there's a fundamental motivational change. His heart was set right with God. What is another word for setting something right? Justifying it. When you justify the margins on your Word document, you are setting them right. To set right means to justify. So Abraham's heart was set right from distrust to trust, and then he was recognized or accounted as righteous. Why? Because he actually was. He had his right heart again. His heart was renewed. It's real. But what we're taught instead is, God declares you to be righteous even though you're not. Your heart's not really true. It's not set right. You don't really trust him. You're going to continue to live in sin forever. Just be sure that you confess them and get the legal, legal account and blood paid to your account in heaven. It keeps Christians paralyzed. That understanding of justification truly does explain the thief on the cross to me. Exactly. He trusted him. His heart was set right. And, and that's the key. On perfection, too. We think, oh, the Bible says, be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And yet we always say, you know, we could never be perfect. But it depends on our definition of what perfection is. Is perfection true appreciation, trust, and love in God? Biblical perfection is maturity. It's, it's growing up. It's becoming mature people that have that mature trust, friendship, relation with God. That's what biblical perfection is. It's not about performance. Yeah, Russell. One of the threads I see running through all of these covenants we've been talking about is that the only, the only responsibility humanity has is to be willing listeners. That's it. Everything else is on God. All the other responsibilities is. And that type of listening, get, get it, guys, that type of listening is... And applicable listening. It's like when you listen to your, do you listen to your doctor's prescription and instructions? It's not, I heard him, but then I go home and do my own thing. Listening in this context means an application. I listen, understand it. Oh, that makes sense. I, I, I'm listening to you. I'm doing it. Okay? So it's more, so there is a, there's a behavioral component there, but it does stem from a heart that trusts. Right, but the, the overwhelming majority of the behavioral change comes from, a, from the change of heart. All we have to do is, Trust him, and you know, apply the uh, apply the the diet, the uh, remedy. Exactly right. So Tuesday's lesson, the covenant at Sinai. It says Moses and some leaders went up to Sinai. These leaders included Aaron and, and his two sons, who represented the priests, and seventy elders and leaders who represented the nation. The men accompanying Moses had to stop from afar, but Moses was allowed to go up to where God appeared. Um, I thought, you know, what is being depicted here? When you, when you look at Old Testament stuff, it will help you greatly to remember 
that Israel was selected to be a teaching tool people, if you will. You can use whichever way you want. Teachers, priest, object lesson. But they were, they were, as a nation, a mini theater, an acting troupe with a stage, with costumes, with props. And they each were assigned roles in the play. And when you understand that, then some things become quite brilliant here. Um, Moses, in this context, going up to Sinai, represents Christ in his pre-incarnate state. That's who Moses was, Christ in his pre-incarnate state. And thus, Moses goes into God's very presence as Christ went into God's very presence prior to his incarnation to plan out the plan of salvation. Moses goes in to plan out the whole thing. The lamb in the sacrificial system represents Christ in his incarnate human state, the lamb that was the lamb of God. And Aaron represents Christ in his ascension after his victory, after his incarnate state. So you have Christ represented in three different places here. Nadab, uh, Nadab and Abihu represent the priesthood of believers. So Aaron represents Christ, our high priest. Nadab and Abihu are symbolic of all the priests in their white robes. You know, the, in the, the sacrifice. We are robe of righteousness, the priesthood of believers. And the 70 elders represent the inhabitants of the world who are in need of salvation from the witness of the priesthood of believers. That's if you actually look at the old camp, they had the sanctuary in the middle, and the Levites camped all around, and outside the Levites were the, were the uh, rest of the 12 tribes, symbolically representing this very process that the, the priesthood of believers are branch out, if they will, and minister or witness to the rest of the world. They, saw, they all saw God from a distance, symbolizing how God has continued to reveal himself through human history to all people, whether people in the church or people outside the church, God reveals himself to all people. At Sinai, the people were frightened, but Moses was not and said there's no need to be afraid, which symbolizes how whenever God appears, even to the prophets, they always fall down trembling and frightened. Whenever God appears, uh, believer or non-believer, they get frightened, but Jesus is always there. There's no need to be afraid. There's no need to be afraid to comfort and take away our fears. God spoke to ancient Israel in various ways, and he speaks today in various ways. The same, same type thing you see being acted out. Understanding ancient Israel as an acting troupe, their entire history is an acting troupe, not just the drama in the sanctuary will bring insight into why, uh, how you can explain many things that seem mysterious, like Uzzah. You ever wonder about Uzzah? What's going on with Uzzah? How come he gets struck dead, touching the ark, but the Philistines who had it for months were toting it around and doing stuff and nothing happened to them at all? What's, what's the deal with that? Well, they, ha- they were wearing rubber and sold shoes and, they, and the electrical current couldn't pass through. Uh, I mean, is, is that what was happening? Uh, no. It's an acting troupe. The ark is symbolic of the universe reconciled fully to harmony with God again. Remember we've gone through the symbols of the ark before? Okay, the, the lid on the ark, the hilasterion, is solid gold, represents Jesus Christ. The angels in the ark represent the unfallen uh, heavenly beings. The Shekinah glory represents the Father. And the box underneath, made out of acacia wood, which is a porous wood, covered fully in gold, represents fallen humanity, restored to righteousness by accepting the righteousness of Christ, which is the gold filling up all the defects. And inside the box were three things. Remember the three things that went in the box, in, in a certain order, manna, the law, and the rod that budded. And the manna represents symbolically Jesus. I'm the bread of life, which we must partake of into our heart first. We have to take Jesus into the heart first. When we take Jesus in the heart, the truth that he's revealed, we are one to trust. We open the heart and trust. It says, I'll write my law on your heart and mind. Thus the law of love, God's character is reproduced within us. And when that happens, we who were dead in our trespasses and sin, the dead stick, begin bringing forth peaceable fruits of righteousness. Our life blossoms again and brings forth the love of God in, in, in our character traits and the way we live our life for others. The Thus, the three emblems that were put in the ark. The ark then symbolizes the whole universe at one, bring things, all things together under one head, even Jesus Christ. And so you see the sinful humans connect to Jesus, the angelic beings connect to Jesus, and the Shekinah connects. So Jesus is the connecting link that connects the world together. This is symbolic, symbolism of the ark, okay? Uzzah, he is a representative of the fallen humanity. Now, in the, in the stage, what happens when fallen humanity comes in the unveiled presence of God's glory? They survive. They don't survive. And so when Uzzah touches the ark, what's the 
if we're gonna if we're on stage and we're acting out the play, what what's as I have to do now? He has to die. Because that's what happens. It's a teaching tool. It's a lesson. It's an object lesson. It doesn't mean that us is lost eternally. It just means in the play, in the drama, this is what happens when someone who has got a, a uh, assignment in the script does this. The Philistines were not in the script. They're not on stage. They, they have no role in the play. Thus, it didn't happen for them when they touched it. There's no lesson there. So what happened with Nadab and Abihu, the two sons that went up with Aaron, and represent the priesthood of believers when later they put their own fire in their uh, censers and fire came out from the Lord and destroyed them. Fire came out from the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. So what's the symbolism? What, it's very straightforward. <laughs> they went off script. And when you go off script, what's the, what's the director do for people who go off script? He takes them out. Their understudy. Their understudy comes in. But it's also object life. Many thought things were taught here. The fire that came out from the Lord and consumed them, but then in the next verses, the cousins go in, drags them out still in their tunics. Thus we understand that this fire is not the fire of combustion. It didn't burn them up. The molecules didn't, didn't uh, oxidize. It wasn't that type of fire. It was the fire of God's unveiled glory, again showing unrepented sinners, even those, and I think this was a very powerful lesson, those people who represent me and go around claiming to represent me, those Christians at the end of time claiming to carry a message of truth with fire to the world, but are taking this distorted image of me. This is, they, they said, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We perform miracles in your name. This is the group he's talking about. These group of people, these Christians going around misrepresenting God when they actually come into God's unveiled presence are going to have what happened to Nadab and Abihu. That's what's going to happen. It's a lesson. It was a great question. Yeah, and, if you, and when you get this idea of an object lesson in a theater, go back and look at the stories now. The entire history of the landscape is a story. We don't have time to get into it today. Um, but you think about Babylon and what it represents, Egypt and what it represents, Pharaoh and what, it, what he represents, uh, the, uh, Goliath and what Goliath represented. All of these things are stories and they're object lessons. They're, they're real history, but they also have object lessons. You think about the, uh, the, um, the virgin births. How many, not virgin births, um, miracle births. Not virgin births, miracle births. How many women who were barren uh, had, a, had miracle conceptions and births? You look at them through the Old Testament. Every one of them is a certain object lesson to Christ. The child of the promise, Isaac. The uh, deliverer, Joseph. The barren woman, right? Joseph comes from that. How about the Shunammite woman? Elijah, remember? She is barren, has a child, the son dies, and what happens to the son? Rises again, rises from the dead. I mean, you find that every one of them in some way... Oh, another one, Samson. Remember? Woman can have a child. Samson, Samson the judge. Jesus is the judge. I mean, every one of these object lessons, lesson book, teaching us something. If we can look past just the simple stories to see what's actually there. So understanding this idea of a stage, I think, clears up so much of the Old Testament stuff. But you can't do that if you're operating at level four and below. Level four and below, it's a bunch of rules. If you don't keep the rules, then you must be punished. Wendell, closing comment. You want to, you want to, don't want to say it? Well, it, it, there's a lot of hocus pocus in, in the court about what happened with Moses going into the. If you read Exodus 24, actually the 70 saw, saw the Lord. Mm-hmm. And it talks about. But from a distance. Well, it saw them and he talks about what he looked like and what he was standing on, all this stuff. We are all witnesses of God. That's right. And only by coming to know him. It's not hocus-pocus. No, that's right. I, and I, I like the fact you're emphasizing that again. It's important. The 70, so the priests who represent the priesthood of believers, and the 70 who represent the in the stage play, the, the yet-to-be-converted in the world, all saw God from a distance. And that's where we are in the world today. God is revealing himself, and people all over the world, and if you remember some of those quotations like in the Desire of Ages, where it says that about the heathen who has never had the truth brought to them by human instrumentalities, but has uh, understood the movements of God as in nature, and trusts God and follows the Spirit, they're considered children of God, or Paul in Romans chapter 2, uh, those who have not heard the law, but do by nature the things contained in the law, law unto themselves, showing their conscience bear witness, because the law has been written upon their hearts. Yes, this is also acted out in this, in this drama. God is revealing himself to all human beings. Some 
And eventually his plan is that we all get to walk in and see him face to face. First John, that when he comes, we shall see him face to face. Why? For we shall be like him. That's the key. If we have this legal penal theology where we are declared to be righteous even though we're not, we are not like him. And we won't see him face to face. It is those who have thrown that thing out. And I'm telling you, it is time for Christianity to reject this entire penal substitutionary theory and come back to the Gospels that is in Jesus Christ that we are to have new hearts and right spirits and be like Christ in character. Those are the ones who are going to see him. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are the creator and the restorer who has achieved what is necessary through and in Jesus Christ to heal and fix all the brokenness in our hearts, minds, and characters. We ask now that the Spirit will come and take all that Christ has achieved, reproduce it in us, write your law into our hearts and minds, give us discernment and wisdom, purge the distortions from our, our thinking processes and help us establish new patterns of living in harmony with your character so that when you come, we will see you face to face, for we shall be like you, we pray in your holy name. Amen.